everyone, this is KK Downing, formerly of Judas Priest, and you're listening to Focus on Metal, so crank it up as loud as you can. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, and yep, you guessed it, it is another dose of Focus on Metal. It's uh, It's been kind of an artist-focused few weeks here on Focus on Metal, and we thought this week we're going to swing it back again to uh, something that isn't uh, an artist themselves on the show, and we have our special guest, John Tucker. So for those of you in the U.S., I know you're probably thinking, oh, uh, the classic film, John Tucker Must Die, uh, nothing of the sort. Those of you who are over in Europe, especially the UK, you guys know of John Tucker for, for ages now as a journalist for a whole lot of magazines, uh, including the uh, relaunch of Metal Rendezvous, and he's done a whole bunch of other stuff with, uh, with neat records and, and all kinds of things. But back in around 2003, uh, John decided that he really missed writing about metal. And that's when he began writing his uh, his first book. It's called Susie Smiled, The New Wave of British Heavy Metal. And I think that is a kick-ass way to start a uh, an, an authorship was with uh, such an, an awesome subject like that. And after that, John has just gone on and written a whole bunch of books. And besides books, too, this guy's also done a lot of photography as well. So I'm sure that uh, you've seen his photography in magazines, on album covers, all over the place. Probably didn't even know that it was this guy. So yeah, definitely busy, busy guy. And if you're curious about some of the other metal books that he has written, and some of them are pretty rare, might be hard to get your hands on, or you may have to... uh, Go to some of your local used booksellers as well. But he has done a book called Neat and Tidy, the story of Neat Records. And uh, just as an aside, there's actually a pretty cool documentary about Neat Records. I can't remember if it's Netflix or Amazon. But uh, yeah, I watched that a few weeks ago and uh, it actually is pretty interesting. He also did one called White Snake, the definitive biography. And uh, that one there is uh, one of those kind of a luxury tome. So you're going to pay a little bit more for it, but uh, obviously, you know, it's metal. It's worth the money, right? And then a a great one, you know, I'm talking about collaborations that John's done. He did one with Biff Byford. It's called Never Surrender or Nearly Good Looking, and it's an autobiography of of Biff that he did with John. There's also another one he did with Brian Tatler called Am I Evil? The Music, The Myths, and Metallica. And then, of course, the uh, his initial first one, which is Susie Smiled, the new wave of British heavy metal. But this week, we have him on the show to talk about his latest book, and it is called Judas Priest on Track. Every album, every song from Rockarola to Painkiller. And this is actually kind of a follow-on because back in, uh, as John will talk to us about, back in 2013, he wrote a book for uh, for IMP Publishing called uh, Judas Priest, The Early Years, but uh, never actually saw the light of day, so he's been sitting on this for uh, uh, quick math here. I suck at math. Six years now, and uh, he's finally launched out, like I said, Judas Priest, every album, every song from Rockarola to Painkiller. 
And before we just get into the chat with John, just want to let you know that if you want to get a hold of John online, his uh, main website is johntuckeronline.co.uk. So with all of that dispensed with, why don't we uh, just go right into Richie's chat with John Tucker all about his brand new book about one of our favorite bands here on Focus on Metal. That is The Priest. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Richie. Hello. Is that John? It is. Hello, Richie. How are you doing? I'm very well. How are you? I'm good. So before we get into it, John, I was just looking down through your bio. Now, I did... um, I did a, ma- a huge project a couple of years ago on Kerrang! magazine, especially in the 80s. And I, interview- I interviewed, you probably know these guys, Xavier Russell, Mick Wall, uh, Howard Johnson, uh, Dante Benuto. Um, did, you ever ri- did you ever write for Kerrang? No. Okay, what about Raw Magazine or Metal Hammer? Did you ever write for those? No. Okay. I was bandaging basically. I didn't say I wrote for Kerrang! did I'd hate that. Hmm. No, um, no, I never, I always just stuck with the fanzines. Okay. There was a chance to write for crying at one stage, but I, it just, now, uh, I'm quite happy to do my own thing, no masters, no sponsors sort of thing. Hmm. So no, I just wrote noted fanzines and gather articles and things. Okay. It just seems that a lot, a lot of guys from back then, they've gone into, into books and I know you said that you wrote for a lot of fanzines, but what I found was a lot of the writers did start with the fanzines and then work yeah. and for the magazines in the end, and you just never went that route at all. No, no. Um, the, the main thing, the main reason I started writing books was because um, I was doing a fair bit of work for Sanctuary, um, writing speed notes for largely urban releases. Mm. Um, and then I kind of figured I had all these stories, and back at that time, this is early 2000s, um, there wasn't the great sort of revival that there's been now and I was kind of worried that a lot of these bands would just get forgotten so I started um, yeah, I did the sleeve notes and I thought well let's just write a book and see what happens and that was Susie Smiled okay so I kind of went from there when I wrote the first book I thought that was great let's do another one okay did did, did you find writing full books uh, was that easy for you to do? yeah I enjoy it I really enjoy it Okay. Time is always time is always the problem, as I'm sure you'd appreciate. Yeah. Time is always against you. But no, I I do enjoy it. It's someone with almost no attention span whatsoever. Um, to me, it loses patience at the top of a hat. I find writing books extremely easy. Mm. Now, one of the other things in your bio that fascinates me, it, it mentions that you started up some fan clubs for, for bands in the UK. Uh, one of them you named was Queensryche. How do, you, how, do you, how do you start that up in the first place? Like, do you contact the band's yeah. management and, and go from there? How does all that process begin? I can't 100% remember now, but I, was, I, I sort of signed up to the original Seattle-based fan club, so I was really big on the band when it came out. And they announced, I can't remember it came back, they announced they wanted to sort of broaden it so they'd then be a sub-fan club in every country that they could send information to, and you'd find out from there. And so I just said, fine, I'm interested, I'll do it. And it came from there, really. So it was, they were very, they had a very good um, sort of 
fan organization, they had one sort of central coordinator who ran and the, the, the main fan club. And they came from there, really. Hmm. And how, how, how many hours of, of the day would that take up for you in the end doing that? Because that band blew up pretty quickly in the, in the mid 80s. They did. Um, around the time of. Rage Fraud, didn't do too well over here because they didn't tour it. They only played two dates supporting Bon Jovi. Um, but about that time, I was writing for five different fanzines. I had two other fan clubs on the go. Um, and another woman then said she wanted to meet and get involved. So basically, I let her get more involved and then just walk away from it. Mm. Because, yes, you're right. That, was, that would have been, that became for her a sort of full time hobby. Mm. So, so, what back then, John? What, what what would you get for being a member of the Queensrÿche fan club in the UK? Just it was just an informational based thing. I didn't. Um, I'd send out odd photographs and things if I had them, but it wasn't. You know, there, there was no great prizes or presents or gifts. It was, I suppose it was more of an in, that was more of an information exchange, basically. Hmm. So right. I put fan newsletters out and tell people what's going on. Try and get photographs of releases that people might not have come across in the UK, these sort of things. Mm. We're doing something like that now. That would probably open the doors for you to get to maybe interview the band for the, for the fanzines. Like, did the word get around that you were running a couple of fan clubs and, and that definitely helped you get interviews? Um, never really thought about that. Possibly. Um, yeah, I, I just use whatever contacts I could find. I've never really thought about that. Possibly. Mm. Because I did, sort of, I did sort of run into people who, you know, did the old, oh, you, you're the guy, you're the guy under fan clubs. But, I, you know, I never made a big deal of it in that respect. But, yes, it might be language. Mm. So, w- one of the questions I always ask all the writers that, when I had the guys on from Kerrang, what, what's the best interview you think you've ever done? Like, who's who's your favourite interview? Oh, gosh. Um, my favourite interview would have been um, Ian Lucasen, the uh, Dutch multi-instrumentalist. Okay. Maybe because um, uh, that one sticks in my mind because um, we got, you know, I got to the hotel where we were staying in London, just sat myself down, and he was really hyper, really excited. And the first thing before I could ask my first question, he said, come on, tell me, what do you think of it? And he really wanted to know an honest opinion of his new album. Whereas a lot of people tread the same old story out, you know, this is my best album I've ever done. It was, and it became, it was, it was quite a two-way process. It wasn't just me asking him questions; it became a three-hour question-answer session. Okay. Don't know either. Sabotage was very similar when we were running the Prog Power UK gigs. I interviewed him for the the um, festival program, and. It, that, that again, that ran for about three, three and a half hours. There's so much stuff on tape or on voice recorder. Wow. Just unwieldy trying to work it, work through it all. And wow. that one sticks in my mind, largely because he said that they'd started off playing Deep Purple covers, and Deep Purple is probably my favorite band. So mm. he started singing us, um, he started singing a purple song, and I joined in. I thought, wow, I'm singing the John Oliver. So yeah, those two stick in my mind because they were. It was two way because they were keen to know what I thought, and we could talk about music and films and books and all kinds of things. And it was all chat and interview. Did you did you find John that when you were doing the fanzines that 
you mightn't have been taken as seriously as like the other magazines like Kerrang that were you know they they were they look the fanzine thing is more of a the fans get together to do the fanzine they, you know the quality of the actual print mightn't be as good but then you had like the the, the the regular magazines that were on bookshelves and all that that the publicist might actually take that in, interview offer more seriously than yours definitely um, I would there are exceptions but with a lot of bands you I kind of felt that fanzines were a stepping stone and once once the band had sort of moved on to say the Kerrang Metal Hammer stage um, you got very little comeback um, and I think that was the way it was I had no problem with that I mean I could sell a fanzine with 500, 600, 700 copies Kerrang was turning right I don't know 20,000 I don't know uh-huh. so you know you had to be realistic about this but at the same time I'm quite into looking for what else is happening so I mean, I, I just wouldn't know what to say if I interviewed Metallica. I just, you know, it's all been said and done. But if there's some new band kicking around, that's who I'm more interested in finding out. So, so it didn't really bother me in, in one respect. It was like a trooper, you know, you interview bands, they move on to the bigger magazines, some more, more smaller bands come along, and you can pick up again. Uh, so ju- helping giving bands, giving bands, you know, the, the small bands breaks, that's fun. Yeah, I think that's really what a fanzine is for. It's yes, you, you want to sell magazines, um, but you're not you're not a, you're not tied to that. You're not tied to a target from a publishing company. You know, you you got to put Metallica on the cover, and you you know you got to get Guns right. N' Roses on the cover. With a fanzine, you can really do whatever the hell you want. You can, yeah. I mean, it's all right. You know, we did get when I was working in London with, in, on Marshall Stack. We didn't get sent the Guns N' Roses, the original Guns N' Roses, um, Live Like a Suicide Tape. You know, that was, the fan, an established fanzine was a way forward. Got loads of special noise records, because they, you know, they, they worked the fanzine scene, they knew that was how you spread the word underground. It was informative, it was fun, uh, that's the main thing, and as you said, it didn't matter if we, you know, if we ended up with, half the stuff still in the garage, no one was trading us to, to sell 50,000 copies. Mm. Just kept plugging away. Yeah. So, John, another question I asked all the writers from back, from back then was the worst interview they ever did. Now, I spoke to, this is this will tell you, I spoke to 10 Kerrang! writers, and two of them named the same guy as being the worst interview they ever did, and that was Earl Slick. Um, do you have any yeah. interview nightmares that you had back then that for whatever reason the interview didn't turn out the way you wanted or the guy was just in a bad mood or, or wouldn't answer anything? Uh, that's surprising. I quite like Earl Slick. I like, I've never met him. I like his style. Um, no, not really. I mean, I was, there was when King Diamond released Abigail. I loved that album. I thought it was great. And I interviewed him. Um, and... I thought I'd come up with some really innovative and exciting questions, and he answered them beautifully. I got home, and I started typing it all up, and then a week or two later, Quran came out, and different questions had exactly the same answers. <laughs> that, that's kind of what I thought, it, that's when I was formulaic it all got. Almost like the politician stuff, you know, I don't care what the question is, I'll give you the answer that I want to give. 
And that mm. was a bit disappointing because I thought I'd really put a lot of effort into that. Mm. that ha- that's happened so, to me a couple of times. I don't have any, any great nightmares in that respect. I, I don't remember. If I have, I've really been from the memory. Let's put it that way. <laughs> okay, John, so let's get into the, uh, the Judas Priest book on track. Uh, wh- Before we do that, can I, can, I, can I chuck one more thing your way? Yeah, sure. Talk about um, great interviews. Lemmy. Lemmy was always brilliant. Mm. I'll tell you why. In 1887, I interviewed Lemmy for Brazil's Rock Brigade magazine, and he walked in the room and said, you look like Brazilian. And I said, I'm not Brazilian. La da da. Uh, 2003, I interviewed him for my book, Susie Smiled, um, and I walked into the room and said, I know you. And I said, what do you have met for? And he said, look, you're dead. And he said, you're not Brazilian, are you? I thought, how the hell did you remember that? Wow. That was like 16 years ago. Wow. So that was fun. That was fun. That mm. was great. I've heard, anyway, I've, heard, I've, I've heard similar stories about, about Ronnie James Dio. I don't know if you ever interviewed him. That he'd remember well, you the next. He'd, he'd remember you the next time you, you interviewed him, and he'd call you by name. Like just incredible. Uh, that is amazing. Anyway, so I come across you. Okay, Facebook. Yeah. So, when did the publishing company come to you about writing this? Like, and how long did it take for you to actually do it? Right. Um, the actual book itself. Uh, dates back, and this is in the introduction, dates back to about 2013, when uh, the publisher who published See Smiled had a series of books on the early years, and he had a priest book commissioned. Uh, something went wrong, and he asked if I could write something really quickly. So I wrote the original book in 10 weeks, submitted it, got paid for it, then he decided to close the company down and sold it to another publisher. And the book just sat under my bed, metaphorically, and did nothing. Um, Sonic Bond, I know the um, I know Sonic Bond from their prog metal promotion company. And when they sort of put books out, and we, we got into some conversation, and I just happened to mention that I had this unused manuscript that they'd be interested. And they were. Now, I thought it needed a bit of tweaking, but at the end, it would need a complete rewrite. So it probably took about six to seven months in total. Okay. John, have you ever met um, or interviewed any of the guys in Judas Priest? Um, I've never met, uh, but I did get the opportunity to interview um, K.K. Downing whilst his book was on the go. Mm, I ha- promoting his own autobiography um, and I made, made contact and said look I am writing my own book but, and it was quite interesting I had no problem so yes he came on board and the other person I interviewed was Al Atkins okay. who was, was a bit of a, a footnote but still has some really good stories to tell mm. I, I interviewed KK when his book came out and I spent about 50 mm. minutes on the phone with him I just found him to be really nice down to earth humble guy Exactly. And he didn't mind that I was doing something else. I thought that was really funny. He didn't mind that, that, that half the questions I was asking nothing to do with his book. In fact, he got quite into it. So, and wished me well at the end. So, yes. So, I had some direct quotes from him. And I had some direct quotes from, a lot of quotes from Atkins. Because the original book had brought a lot of different people in. Um, by different musicians because that's more my style. I don't want to 
had it on myself and I can get people who know people musicians who know this you know, who know their stuff. So I, I like to bring other people involved, which makes it slightly different from a lot of the other Sonic Bomb books. Mm. Because not tend to be very much the author giving his opinion. Mm. Whereas I'd much rather someone else, you know, ask someone else for their opinion. Yeah. John, what was the the first Judas Priest album you bought with your own money? First one that I bought, well, actually, I was given it for my birthday present, and it was um, Unleashed in Lease was the first one I came across. Okay. So you've been a fan since before me, because the first time I got into Judas Priest was Turbo. Um, right. Uh, and I'm a huge fan of that album. Um, one of the things I find when I'm reading the book is... You definitely lean more towards the 70s era and maybe the early 80s era than the mid-80s era to the, to, up, up to Painkiller. You're, maybe that's because you really got into the band in the 70s and you just have more of an emotional attachment to that stuff. You might be right. The one thing I did think is I think there was always, to my mind, um, an element of tongue-in-cheek and of humour in, in, in Priest. I think they kind of lost that somewhere along the line. After Turbo, I think it all got very serious. I think I think Turbo didn't do what they did. I mean, I like Turbo. It's got a couple of flat tracks on it, but in my opinion, but I really like the album. Um, but afterwards, they seem to be trying too hard. Um, especially, I'll ram it down in Painkiller, which, Painkiller, I mean, most people love Painkiller. It just seems they're trying too hard. Whereas, there was a a looseness, a fun about say things like Killer Machine, ten songs, nothing longer than about four minutes. And it's it's fun. It's it's not something you take seriously. Hmm. Do you, music, it's not something you have to contemplate too much. You can just enjoy it for what it is. Yeah. The other thing, John, I, I I did notice is you're not a fan of their anthem songs like United and Taking on the World. You you seem to look view them with like disdain. It might be too strong a word, but it's it's like rote singles for radio. United, I, I always thought was a terrible piece of music. Take on the world, I think is great. Take on the world with the that was my introduction to Judas Priest. Judas Priest was a name written on factuals and school books and uh, other kids' notebooks. Um, so I knew of them, but my introduction to Judas Priest came by. Then appearing on Top of the Pops um, in January 1979, whenever it was. And I love that song, and I still do. But no, I, I don't care for United. Uh, I think they, they tried to recreate it, and they failed miserably. They had one great song, one great anthem, Take on the World, which they didn't play that much. They got knocked out of the set list, which surprised me no end. Um, and yes, but, but United, I, I think, is a terrible piece of music. Hmm. The other album you really go to to town over for not liking is uh, Point of Entry. You really don't have much time for that at all. I don't. No, I, I think that's a major misstep. I think, and I, I think they know that heart and heart. So they they know that 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 wasn't the album to follow. Um, British Dealer Paul. Hmm. It was um. But you put the two side by side. Um. There's almost nothing formulaic on um, British Steve at all. It's a great collection of songs. A couple of, again, a couple of mistakes. Stigler, Rapid Fire, 
And then you drop down to, you know, you say yes, troubleshooter. Now, I, I think that was, I think that was, Everything criticizes Turbo, but I think their biggest step was that. Mm, I th- one of the things, and, and I'm nearly sure you said it in the book, is uh, it's the only 30th anniversary album that they haven't reissued since. Um, mm-hmm. Brit- is it British Steel? Like yeah. th- they've done British Steel, they've done Screamer for Vengeance, and then they skipped Point of Entry, and, and then did uh, Defenders of the Faith and Turbo. Yeah. Um, either. Yeah, they don't like it, or they just don't have enough bonus material there to to sell it. Two, there's two great radio shows that you know, are easily available. There's BBC, BBC House with Eighty One, which is a fine, fine performance, and uh, there was one from the New York, New York Palladium. Either those are radio shows they could have easily got the rights to and put out a nice little bonus package. Hmm. So why? There you go. It's a shame if fans were these things rather than than executives. Might be very different. Mm. So, so so John, why why did you uh, finish with Painkiller? Why did you not just keep going and do the rest of the discography? Was it just a space thing that was limited to a certain number of words, and that was it? Largely, yes. I mean, um, we could have carried on. I originally, as I said, it took longer to write than I thought it would because the original early years book finished at Steel, I think. Um, and but it's, what I thought was just you know, adding a couple of chapters and tweaking it became a, a, quite a fundamental rewrite, a rewrite working. But if I put another, what, six albums in it, four since Reformation and the two with, with Rick Rowan, you're going to start squeezing the word count now. It's pretty much pretty much an average word count for the Sonic Bond. Mm. Um, and I'd have to really, have really cut down the content for every chapter otherwise. So, John, what do you think of the Ripper stuff? You, you a fan? Hey, this is Tim Ripper Owens, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Let's go. Not a great fan of Jokulator, but you love Demolition. Okay, I, I'm the other way around. I mean, it could be that I don't know Jokulator that well, but we saw Demolition Demolition toured the UK quite widely, and I saw it twice. Um, I I just thought that album was really good. It all fitted together beautifully. Um, And to my mind, they were back on track. Having said that, we were watching them in diminishing-sized halls, you know? People were staying on. I've got a massive... Free fan friend who won't even touch with a barge pole. Didn't never even bought them. Wow. Uh, but that, you know, band, not a, most of the main bands have, have had a different singer at some stage. Now, Sabbath, Purple, Priest, Maiden. But yeah, um, it just didn't, for whatever reason, it didn't work. And you knew that there was an inevitability about Alfred returning. Yeah. What what's your take on firepower? Because that's been universally raved. Were you jumping up and down with excitement when you heard that that you know it was an amazing priest record? Um, sorry to be a party pooper, but no. Um, I it's it it carried. I mean, it's 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 painter for the twenty first century. It's a very strong record, but um, there's there's nothing in there that excites me in the same way as. A, you know, stained glass or exciter or something like that. 
It's very full now, beautifully produced, great sound. But um, no, I'm afraid there's not been a lot since the Reformation that does make me leap up now. The first one was good. I really enjoyed Angel of... Retribution. Retribution. That's right. I love that one. Yeah. But um, after that, it it kind of... um, Yeah. Again, I think they're missing that that sort of humour. Yeah, do you, you're not a fan of Nost- you're not a fan of Nostradamus then. No, <laughs> let's move swiftly on. I yeah, don't know, I, I don't know what happened there. I don't know what they were trying to achieve. And I'm not sure they knew what they were trying to achieve either. I mean, it might have worked, and um, this comes from KK's book. It might have worked if they'd done the full concept stage show. Yeah, that was never. John, that was yeah, never. Thought, oh, that was never going to happen. No, but it might have. It might have made the album might have come to. You know, sometimes you can. I, I can't be any person who you get an album, you think, "Nah, that's all right. It's, that's okay." Then you see it live. You see a few tracks live. You think, "Wow, I really get this." And you go back and you play it with different ears. Right? It's possible if there'd been like a full stage show, um, then it might have been a matter of this is. I get it. I, I really get where, they, where they're coming from. But they played a few tracks on the tour, and it just seemed a bit, no, it just, just it didn't seem to work. Mm. John, John, you mentioned there about Firepower not having the uh, the same attachment to you as like stained glass. I think a lot of that has to do with, well, it's our age, number one, because when I listened to Turbo when I was 16 years old, that's when I got into metal. So anything from like 86 to say 89, I'll always have more of an emotional attachment to that stuff. And I think as well as that, uh, we just listen to music a lot different now that we won't actually take the time to sit down and listen to an album like five or six times. You know, years ago, there was an effort in getting it. You had to go to a store. You might have to queue up. You bring it home. You spend more money on it. Now it's just Spotify listen to 20 or 30 seconds and, and you're done you're quite right I mean I don't actually do things like Spotify um, but I do find that, that having become you know becoming a, a, a writer you know if, if I'm reviewing an album it takes five or six plays before I'm going to review it so get three of those in a week that takes up an awful lot of time so yes the days when you come home you sit there and you pour over the lyric sheet and you, you They'd listen to every note and knew every song. Um, there were very few albums that I probably bought in 20 years that I could tell you what the second track was called. Uh. The first track. And, and you're right. I mean, there's some albums that, that just, just click with you because it was a great day. It was a great time in your life. It was a great experience, things like that. So, yeah, I'm sure you're probably quite right. I'm sure that's why someone comes to Firepower New and makes it brilliant. Is absolutely brilliant. Yeah. As long as I then go back and investigate what came before. Mm. So, that's all I'd ask. Yeah. So, John, how difficult was it to get the information on the tours? Because that's the stuff I find really good in, in the book as well. You, you say when the tours start, what, what songs are in the set, what, what songs were dropped, how long they lasted, and all that. Was that information easy to find? Um. I have got. I've taken a great deal of notes over the years. 
Now, um, it was a combination of my own observations and then a lot of time spent on things like setlist.fm, comparing my notes with other people's observations from other parts of the tour. So a lot of it came from, from there. Okay. Because that, that stuff, I think, it, you know, in this book anyway, for me is gold. Because I've often, stuff like that fascinates me because when albums came out back then, uh, you didn't know whether they played two songs, five songs, they could have played seven songs, and then after a couple of shows, they could have dropped four of them. And, you know, you've got all this information in the book. Um, yeah, I'm, I really am a fan of all that, you know, that, that, all that nuggets of stats like that. I think the likes of us are a bit on the, um, bit on the anal side, we like that. Sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not a bad thing, you know. I think it's, you know, maybe because of the train spot when I was a kid. Mm. But I do like that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. So the, what about getting the information on the the bonus tracks? Because I I bought all the, st- all the reissues when they came out for the box set. And it had all the bonus tracks on it, studio tracks and live tracks. Uh, you present all those in the book from what sessions they came from. Was that easy to find that material? Most of it's available online, but I'm always very, I'm always very dubious. I like, um, I like confirmation, and there's um, um, some other books that have already been written by Priest um, that gave, uh, you know, would, would cross-reference and confirm um, a couple of bits of information that were available in interviews at the time or, or maybe afterwards when they say, yeah, well, there was another song but we never actually finished it off or we did this with it. So it was basically a combination, again, a combination of what's been made available, um, all the information I might have uh, in other interviews and other books and online. Hmm. One of the things you do mention in the book, if I recall correctly, is uh, the whole of the Unleashed in the East concert has never been officially released, even when they did the reissue. Yeah. That that just it would be, boggles my mind. It would be nice. I mean, maybe maybe not all the takes are there. Yeah. You can make most of it up from what's available, but it would be nice for you know, someone to spend the time to try and, and recreate it as it was. Hmm. It's a real shame it was never a double in the first place. Definitely. Because those sort of things cry out to be a double set. Like you still didn't lose a couple of songs, and you finally got to chop it to get it, in, chop the order around to get it to fit. But yeah, it's, it, that, the only criticism of that is it should be a double album. Yeah, and the, the other thing about the bonus tracks, the, the studio tracks, they didn't even sync them all up to be the bonus track for the album that was reissued. Like, did they did have like a track from Screaming for Vengeance and the bonus track might be recorded like two or three years before that. Like, they're not even all in the order that they were recorded. I never understood that because when they announced this batch of reissues, four coming out at a time, uh, originally one bonus track, one studio track, one drive track. Yeah, the assumption was that there would be a some kind of of correlation. Yeah, that's the, the track that got missed off this one. Yeah. Um, but it became a bit of a dog's dinner after a little while. And again, I do think that, that um, someone, you know, I think you know, someone should have spent a bit more time thinking about it. And when they say on, I think it's British Steel, um, 
Blinder, and it says this is recorded on one of our UK tours, and it actually opens with Long Beach, California. Long Beach, California! I mean, just listen to the bloody thing, you can see it's not from the UK. <laughs> it's, 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 it beggars belief, you know? I mean, I used to, I mean, I've done a lot of work with Link Records when I was younger, and their, uh, their attention to detail was terrible. But they were a small company, and they were, you know, doing an awful lot of things, but yeah, yeah. Someone at the size of of certainly BMG should just sit there and just listen to it. Think, oh yeah, that must be a marketing gig. Then can we work out what it is? Um, I mean, I, I'm you know I just sit and play bootlegs and link them all up, which is quite handy. You know, work out what track comes from what from odd glitches in the song or odd vocal phrases or the way it's introduced. But uh, it wasn't that difficult to do that. Yeah, uh, one of the other that's a fix for you. Mm. So one of the albums I just want to finish up on, John, uh, I'm not a fan of Ram It Down at all. I think it's more or less rubbish. um, That was the first new Judas Priest album that came out after I got into Turbo. And I remember remember bringing it home and putting it on. And I'm like, what the hell is this? Because that album to me is more contrived than Turbo is. Um, It's them trying to recapture the, the... the, the classic era from the late 70s and early 80s and for the most part they just fail completely at it and th- you know when I spoke to KK most of that album he confirmed it it's all drum machines on it it's just yep. it's all over the place and the, the cover of Johnny V. Good is dreadful I think um, I think there's a, there's a quote there from um, from Tom Allen about the, the drum machine things but um, there's, there's nothing I can say you haven't just said. <laughs> I completely agree. They um, were on the just what came out on the, the Friday on Tommy Vance's Friday auction. They played around it down. And I thought, well, yeah, this is all right. I like this. Um, and um, abruptly that that just before the solo, that that mid late section, I don't think works. Yeah. But yes, there's nothing I can say that you haven't said. It was dreadful disappointment. What does one? There's one, one classic song on it. And that's Blood Red Skies, and I think that was recorded for Turbo. That was, I mean, when you know that, you would say, oh, yeah, you can see that now. But um, you used the, the C word contrived, and I think it's spot on. I think that, that's exactly what they thought. We've got the major clanger here. We've got to come up with something different. Let's really sit there and work and come up with, you know, the old formula. And I think, and, and that's why attachments aside, that's why I think I've never engaged as fully in the later albums as the first albums, because in those early albums, they just had fun in the studio. They sat and wrote and came out with some bloody terrible lyrics, that, which were quite fun, and some great classic songs. But yeah, that made down, I mean, you say to yourself, I'm, I'm with you 100% on that one. So, John, just a couple of questions before I leave you go. Um, what did you learn about the band writing the book that you didn't know beforehand? Was there one thing that sticks out for you? I think um, from the research, and especially I suppose from KK's book, really, the fact that you, you always thought it was, um, I suppose you always assume that bands are one big happy family, really. And the fact that, um, as you, and I kind of assumed as well, especially before I saw the band, you know, they probably spit the solos and it was all very happy clappy. And you find out later on that realistically, KK seems to be being edged out. He seems to be doing less of the solo work. Um, and it's 
not it's, it's not the kind of happy camp you think it was going to be. Mm. Um, and I think the other thing is, is as I play, as I worked through the game, it was it, it did it did reinforce my view that that um, those early albums, whether it's me or my attachment to them, um, were were the band at the peak of its powers. And it kind of all went a bit awry after. Um, but I like Turbo. I like the album that came, the, the live album that came after um, Priest Live. And it's got some great stuff on it. But um, yeah, it all kind of unraveled, and, and um, they, I think, they fought with themselves to try and come up with something that would get them back to where they wanted to be. But I think their time had passed by then. Yeah. If someone asked you to pick one Judas Priest album to start with, which one would you recommend? Oh, no, don't do this to me. <laughs> um, I would definitely say it would definitely be um, Sabrin's of Destiny. And if it's not Sabrin's Destiny, it would definitely be Stained Class. And if it's not Stained Class, it would almost definitely be um, Defenders of the Faith or Killing Machine. It's, it's, ah. I suppose if you told me that you're going to destroy every Judas Priest album, it would be Sabrin's of Destiny. Okay, I thought you would have taken the uh, the easy option and picked the live album because a lot of people do that. <laughs> I think there's something I came to Southern for Destiny that was probably the uh, third, third, fourth album of theirs I came across, and of course I didn't really know about the you know, that sort of pretensions to Queen back at that time. And the, but, but I was captivated by it. I thought, you know, there's some great... I knew some of the songs from the live album, obviously. So I knew, I knew what to expect in the likes of Tyrant and Ripper and things, and Genocide. But um, being able to see that, oh, brilliant. Island of Domination, there's some really good stuff on there. So um, but, uh, this is one of those pub games we often play. I don't know which your favourite album, so-and-so, but please to God, there's so many things. If you want the... If you want the image that defines the new wave of British heavy metal, which is which is leaving, which is my where I come in, um, it will be Killing Machine. If you want the album that really got them somewhere, then it, it was Sabrina's Destiny made that transition. If you want the album that, that made people start to sit up, it is Sin After Sin. There, there was so much that they did. There was so much that... Um, Everything was different. Everything brought a slightly different part of the jigsaw to the puzzle until such time as you know, it all found the place and I suppose bang the British deal and, and they were up and running. You're unusual, John, in your choices and I'm going to tell you why. Um, you never mentioned British Steel and I think 90% of the Judas Priest fans had, had picked that one to start with. I think it got, I think the job with British Steel is it got, I think it got a bit caramelized, a bit twisted. There was a book on it came out once and I was asked to, to put a few pieces in and I did say that I think it got elevated to legendary status a bit early um, because uh, I mean you've got United which, and Grinder's a great live song but it doesn't really do an awful lot and the same with Metal Gods really just plugs along a bit I think but it was a very very important album for them um, you know I wouldn't say it's one of my it's not my favourite certainly but it, it was the one. That, but it was definitely one that, that broke through for them. Without that album, who knows what might have happened? Yeah. So well, my was, my favorite is "Screaming for Vengeance." Exactly. And you know, they, they, they're, they're down in the dumps. You've done point of entry, which I don't know your views on that, but to my, you know, mine, 
then Screaming comes out and think, wow, this is a band, you know, this, this is it, they're, they're back now. And that and all Defenders of the Faith, I find them both interchangeable, I, I enjoy them both immensely. Yeah, yeah. So, so John, what are you working on now? Um, I have just got the rights back to my first book, Susie Smiled, which kind of went into um, contractual limbo after the publisher sold to another publisher. Um, I've just just got it back now, so I want to rewrite that and relaunch it. Okay. It did really well. It got a lot of good press, and it's my firstborn, and I've got a great attachment to it. Um, so I think there's a couple of things that I'd like to change to it, so I'm, I'm debating whether to remix it and start again, or whether to just put it out as is, and then maybe do a companion piece with it, and try and do the two as a package. But, um, but yeah, that'll keep me going for a while. There's a book on the Monsters of Rock festivals, that comes out in January. Okay. I'll have some of that when that yeah. comes out then. <laughs> um, it's a bit of a coffee table job. It's, job. it's a bit expensive. Have a look at the Rufus Stone website. It's on, it's, they're publishing it. Okay. Yeah, I know Rufus Stone. Um, yeah, so it, it, it's that kind of sort of coffee table job. Yeah. Has, has Biff Byford ever come back to you to, to try and update his autobiography? He hasn't actually. We have sort of we, we did talk about it a little while later. Um, I found that I was hoping to I was hoping to hook up with him in October when they played in London, but I'm pretty aware that yeah. he's having heart surgery, so yep. that's got scrubbed. I'm assuming but Yeah, that yeah, was quite fun. I enjoyed that one. I'm assuming Saxon were probably one of the bands you interviewed in your fanzine days. Uh yes, yes. Okay, so you would have had Biff. No, I didn't, actually, no. The, the reason that book came about because I met the publisher in Berlin, the, the publisher, Ian Pages. Um, I, was, I, had a, I had a few days booked in Berlin. Um, he'd heard that I had this book, Susie Smiles, that was being taken around for publication. And by the time I got to see him, um, it, it was a done deal. I, I got a publisher and that was that, but met this chap who I'd never talked to before in a pub in Berlin. We put it off. And as I was leaving, he said, I've just secured the rights to um, this Piper's autobiography. Would you be interested in writing it? So that's how that one came about. What about Brian? What about Brian Tatler's book? I'm sure the story was a bit different than getting that one. Brian, I I knew, um, I'd, I'd met I interviewed for Susie Smile. That's how it's happened. I interviewed Brian over the phone for Susie Smile. Then I went to see the band a year later. And I had an interview for a magazine I was working at the time. And he remembered me from the book interview. Did a good interview for Fireworks magazine. Um, and then uh, we just went off into London and had a bite to eat. And it didn't get on well, so we kept in touch. Um, so when he was talking about writing a biography, um, I just got involved from that point. Nice, nice. And the White Snake one, how did that come about? Right. Um, back when, oh, back in the mid 80s, um, Simon Robinson, who runs the Deep Appreciation Society, had written um, a fairly 
in Facebook on Whitesnake. Um, I, I don't know what happened behind the scenes, but Rufus Stone got involved, and basically he phoned and asked me, as a, a paid-up member of the British Institute and somebody who did an awful lot of writing for their magazine, if I could update it, because he'd sort of lost touch with the band Great Cut in the later years. Um, so he revamped the first half of the book, and I wrote the second half. Okay. So being a, being a fan, John, of all these bands, if you could pick one musician that you could write their book on and they'd actually help you write it, who would you pick? And many people to choose from. <laughs> who fascinate me would be, um, and it, it would not, this would not work, but Cozy Powell, that's a fascinating character, but of course he's not going to help. Yeah. Um, Dolly Pesh, I think, is a fascinating person. Who? He's Dolo, oh, Dora, yeah, I've met her. She's really nice. I read an interview with her went on for ages once, and I thought she'd done, she'd done a fascinating story to tell. Um, the aforementioned Ian Lucasen, who's always says no one's interested in him, but he's done some phenomenal work. Um, yeah, those who, those who keep me going to start with, there are hundreds of others. Always, the two people I wanted to write about were um, Ronnie James Dale, who, of course, I think he, he does have his own, he had to start writing his own book, um, and um, John Lord. Okay, Ronnie and James Ronnie James Dio does have a biography on him. Um, the author's name is James Curl. Uh, he, wrote, right. he wrote it about two years ago. I actually had James on the show about it. And we got it. We got into that, but I, yeah, Ronnie. Apparently, Wendy is finishing up Ronnie's book, so God knows when that will come out, though. <laughs> Indeed, yes. And but that, I mean, there are so many fascinating musicians in the metal world. Everyone's got a story to tell. I, um, I I thought being a Purple fan, I actually thought you would have said Richie Blackmore. I've done several books on him already. Um, and I don't think he'd be the sort of person who would be that interested anymore. You're right, he'd come in, some, especially some of the early days stuff, before he actually got involved with or formed Purple, and sort of slogging around the Hamburg circuits, well, and, and some of those bands he worked with. Yeah, I'm sure that must have been an awful lot of hard work, and then the success of, the rapid success of Purple after Dylan joined. Um, no, good point, yeah, add him to the list. Add him to the list. There's also a couple of... There's another couple of producers who I think are fascinating. Martin Birch was one, and I've done a lot of interview work with Chris Sangoides, and I thought he'd be a fascinating person, but I'm not sure who would buy books on producers, you know? Do you know what? We we interviewed Chris, and we spent over two hours on the phone with him, and he was brilliant. Yes. Um, I always find that producers, they've... So most of them now, not all of them, because some of them were into drugs as much as the bands. But their memories are very are very good, and they were always there recording all of the records. What you find with a lot of the guys is like once the guy does the drum tracks, he's go, he goes home, and and you know they're not there for all of the sessions. Plus the fact that all these producers have done multiple bands over across numerous genres of music, and their stories are fascinating. Indeed, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but if I was in a band, if I was recording an album, I'd have to be there 24 hours a day. I'd have to see everything. I'd have to, you know, I wouldn't just do, do like, you know, my parts and go off, 
do the bass parts and go, I just couldn't do that. I'd have to see the whole thing through from start to finish. Mm, that's if the other guys want. Well, maybe. That's if the other guys still want you to be around. Well, that, there is that. As well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but you're right. I mean, there, there are some fascinating people out there. And yes, I have been to do with Chris for a couple of projects. And hey, you talk forever and you think, I mean, really, you must be eating up your time now. Right? But there should be a problem to him. Yeah, yeah. So, so John, before I leave you go, do you want to give out the website where people can get in touch with you? Yeah, it's um, if you email me at www.dontuckeronline.com. And you, and you got the book. The book is coming out soon. The Judas Priest book. This book is now available. It's not available from me, but it is available from Sonic Bond. Okay, excellent. I highly recommend it. I um, I just wish you had it done the whole discography, though. Say again? I wish you had it done the whole discography and kept going with the rest of it. Well, maybe another time. Maybe another, part two. <laughs> part two, yes. Yeah, all Can right. Can I ask you a question? Yes, go Can ahead. Can I ask you a quick question? Yeah. Did you like it? I did. I did like it. Um, I do have some other Judas Priest books. Uh, Martin Popoff is one that's brought out. Yeah. Uh, he's brought out two books, and that does the whole discography. Um, what I, what I really liked about this is it goes track by track, and then as well, like I, I already said, that uh, you have all the nuggets on the tours and the songs and all that. I really do like that stuff. Thank you. Huh? Yeah, so I, I I do highly recommend it. I'm not just saying it. <laughs> oh, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, no problem, John. Well, any, do you want to ask me anything else, or are we, is everything okay? No, that does. Just curious, that's all. Perfect, perfect. All right, John, well, I'll leave you go. Have a good rest of the day. And yourself. Take care. All Thank right, you. No problem, John. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. do it for another week of focus on metal hope you enjoyed uh, this conversation with john tucker and again if you want to find out what's going on 
see what the uh, other books that he's written, when they're available, where they're available, then you want to go to, as I said before, johntuckeronline.co.uk. And while you're up there online browsing around, haven't said it for a few weeks, so I'll say it now, you can always head over to our main website, focusonmetal.net. And you will find there an archive of shows going way back, about 10 years. And for a lot of those, there is uh, some streaming links, download links. So if you are curious about some of the other stuff, you can go over to, uh, like I said, focusonmetal.net. Click over to the episodes page. And from there, there is just show after show. So at this point, uh, 444 shows to choose from. And if there's something that's up there that you see that doesn't have a link for you to download or stream, you could uh, check and see if it's still available on iTunes. Or you could also hit me up at scott at focusonmetal.net. And I can see about uh, getting a link up there for you so you can download or stream that episode that you're interested in. Also, we've got uh, the... uh, the blog site, focusonmetal.blogspot.com, where you can always find show notes for uh, this week's shows. You see Richie puts up album reviews and book reviews up there, and sometimes I put some little news spots up there as well. And again, that's focusonmetal.blogspot.com. And of course, we're on Facebook, Richie Mann's the Facebook page, and Twitter, which is where uh, I do most of my online stuff. But uh, anyways, for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, as always, have yourselves a great metal week. And until we talk to you again next week, remember... Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.